You know you're in trouble when the guy that's supposed to be preaching can't figure out how to turn the microphone on. That's never a good sign. Never a good sign. I want to wish all the mothers a a great Mother's Day. And uh, gosh, I don't know where we would be without you. And uh, of course, uh, the special mom that got a new new surprise this week. uh, Just so excited for Graham and and his family to have a new addition. That's really cool and really exciting. And and, uh, uh, their life is going to be filled with uh, even more joy. (laughs) So that's, that's exciting. Uh, turning your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John with me. 1 John. And I know, I'm just going to tell you right now, I know what some of you are thinking. I mean, I can read your mind. You're thinking, what in the world is the drummer doing preaching? <laughs> and I have to admit, as a drummer, I've never seen a drummer preach. But it could be worse. could be a bass player. <laughs> and Johnny's not even here to hear that. Or David. Where's da- David's not even here. I, I, I've saved that all week for Johnny and David, and they're not here. Golly. The one good joke I come up with, and, and nobody's here to hear it but you guys. So, First uh, John is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's one that I've spent a lot of time in over the years, ever since I became a Christian in 1983. The summer of 1983 is a, a, a soon-to-be freshman in high school. Uh, and I have just camped out here a lot. I have a lot of favorite books. Love Proverbs, love the Gospel of John that we've been going through. Lots of favorite books in the Bible. Hard to pick one as the favorite. Uh, but First John is one of my favorites. And uh, we are going to uh, take off a pretty good hunk of it this morning. And I, I, you know, I may have literally bit off more than I can chew. But, but we're really essentially going to do an overview of the book of John, if you will. The book of First John. And, uh, and just talk about some things that I think probably touch on uh, where all of us have been. If you've been a Christian for any period of time at all, uh, you've probably had some doubt at some point about your salvation. You've probably come to some point where you just really wondered, am I really a believer? Is the faith that I have really real? Uh, am I really in Christ? Uh, because if you've walked with God any period of time at all, you're going to have those thoughts. Now, if you're a new Christian, you probably haven't had those thoughts yet, but you will. And, uh, and it doesn't worry me too much when folks question their salvation because I think that's a good thing, that's a healthy thing. Uh, the person that scares me is the person who is so confident and so assured that they would never have any doubts, any way, any how, any shape, any form, and there's no way they could ever be anything other than a Christian. That person scares me. So uh, if you've walked with Christ for a while, chances are you've probably had some doubts about your salvation. I have. I have recently. I've been a Christian since 1983. So that's a long time. That just tells you I'm an, I'm an old guy. But, you, you know, when, when doubts lead you to dig further into God's Word, when doubts lead you to draw closer to Christ, when doubts lead you to spend more time seeking God and pursuing God and chasing after God, doubts are a good thing. And, uh, but I want to spend a little time in First John this morning with you, and I just want to uh, give you some historical context. Our pastor has been really good about explaining that one of the things that you have to do when you're going into a passage of Scripture, the first thing you need to do is understand the historical context. You need to know uh, some things about the book. Who was, who was the author? When was it written? Who, who, who was it written to? What was the circumstances? All of those things. So we're going to spend a few minutes sort of establishing that, okay? So if you'll bear with me a minute, uh, and then we'll get into the meat of the, of the lesson. So first of all, who in the world wrote this book? Well, this is unlike a lot of the epistles 
Uh, most of the New Testament letters, they tell us who wrote it, and uh, 1 John doesn't. 1 John doesn't tell us who wrote the letter. Uh, it, uh, but we have some strong, consistent, very early testimony by the church fathers that uh, the Apostle John wrote this book. The same Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John that we've been studying, that Graham's done such a fantastic job on taking us through. And the same Apostle John who wrote the books of 2nd and 3rd John, and the same Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. And so all of the early testimony and, and, and what's pretty well accepted by uh, all of the scholars, all of the traditional uh, conservative scholars, is that this is a writing of the Apostle John. And when you look at, it's interesting when you look at the book and you compare it with the Gospel of John, there's actually a lot of similarities uh, in the style and the word choices and the way that, that uh, the thing is written. So there's some internal evidence as well. Uh, we don't know for sure when the book was written. Um, it's, it's another one of those unknowns about the, the book of 1 John. It's difficult really to nail down a, a, an exact date, but we, you know, most biblical scholars would surmise that it was late in the first century, sometime probably shortly after the Gospel of John was written, and uh, maybe anywhere from A.D. 85 to A.D. 95. We don't know for sure. The other thing we don't know is who it was written to, for sure, uh, at least from the letter's standpoint. The letter itself makes clear that it's addressed to believers, we know that, but we don't know which believers for sure because it doesn't tell us. But again, if you look back and you read church history and you read the writings of the early church fathers, uh, the, the, the sense of it is that uh, they believed it was written from Ephesus to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, this is an area where John lived late in his life. He exercised uh, apostolic leadership for a number of churches in that area. And so... You know, when you go back to those kinds of, of resources, uh, you can have a pretty good and pretty faithful and pretty solid understanding that uh, uh, that's who it was written to. But the reality is it was, a, it was a circular letter. It was a letter designed to be moved and circulated about Christians uh, all over that area and ultimately uh, to us Christians here today. So getting to the idea of the background, what was the situation when John wrote this letter? What was he... What was he stepping into? What was going on? Well, let me just kind of tell you a little bit of the background. Uh, again, most of the early church fathers testified to the fact that John lived in Ephesus in Asia Minor in the latter part of his life, and he was very active, uh, involved in the churches, involved in overseeing a number of churches, doing quite a bit of writing. Uh, we've talked about all the books that he's written. And uh, he was, at that time, the last remaining apostle. Now, can you imagine that? Uh, you know, you're the last remaining apostle. He was the last person to see and know and touch and walk with and eat with and hang out with Jesus Christ. So you can imagine uh, John's testimony had quite a bit of authority. Uh, he wasn't like me. I wasn't telling you what somebody else said. Uh, I mean, from a personal standpoint, I can tell you what God said, and that's as good as, good as it coming from the lips of, of uh, John if I'm reading from the Word of God. But from a personal standpoint, he was the last remaining apostle, and uh, I can only imagine that folks really would love to hear what John had to say in that day and age. He had a lot of authority from that standpoint. At some point, false teachers arose within the church of Ephesus. It's kind of interesting to go back and read some of the writings of Paul. Paul predicted that this would happen. I mean, he predicted it with tears in his eyes, that at some point he was afraid that there would be false teachers that would come up inside the church. You know, we think about false teachers many times being what happens outside, folks outside the church. But the reality is 
Uh, many times false teachers come from inside the church and if you've been a Christian very long if you've been if you've hung out in church very long you've probably seen some of that you may have experienced some of that you may even maybe may have even experienced a church split or some kind of catastrophic event in a church as a result of false teachers coming up and and uh, beginning to teach false doctrine that's what was going on here and these false teachers sort of rose up from within the church and they began to advocate these 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 new ideas, these concepts that, that look to be, appear to be the early form of what was called Gnosticism, which was, Gnosticism was probably one of the most dangerous heresies in the, for sure, the first two centuries of the church, probably the first three centuries, okay? And this seems to be kind of an early teaching or an early version, some early tenets of, the Gnost of Gnosticism and the teaching uh, that was tied to that. The most basic tenet of this false doctrine is this that basically matter is evil, inherently evil, and spirit is good. That matter is inherently evil, and the spirit is good. Now, there's a couple of fundamental errors that flowed out of that presupposition, that preconceived idea about doctrine. The first one was, okay, if matter is evil, then that means the body's evil. And if my body's evil, and everybody's body's evil because it's matter, then wait a minute, how can Jesus Christ have been a human? How could the holy God of the universe take on a human body if matter is evil, the body is matter, therefore Christ couldn't possibly have taken on a human body? You see how false doctrine leads you down the wrong path. And so that was the first major shift away from the, the teaching and the foundational teaching of the apostles about the incarnation of Jesus Christ was this false idea that all matter was evil, only spirit was good. So it wasn't that they didn't attribute any deity to Jesus Christ. They did. But they came up with these wild, sort of crazy, fanciful ideas about maybe how somehow the spirit of Christ descended on Jesus at some point and then, uh, you know, some point in, in his ministry in his life and then prior to the the res, uh, prior to the uh, crucifixion the you know the Christ came away from the body of, of of Jesus of Nazareth so that was the first sort of logical flow in that thought that since the body is evil uh, how could the incarnation be true now the second thought that sort of flowed out of that that was affecting these churches was the fact that since the body's evil Matters evil, only spirit is good, only spirit really matters. So there became this sort of disconnect between what we did in our bodies and with our bodies versus our standing with God in the spiritual realm. So you can begin to understand if you took the idea that, hey, you know what, what I do in my body really doesn't matter. It doesn't really have any consequence to my spiritual standing, to my spirituality, to my connection with God, to my relationship with God. Uh, doesn't take you long to see where that road would lead. And as a result of that, these teachers uh, were leading people down a really rough path. And we'll see that as we get into this, not only did they, the logical flow of that was they even denied the nature of sin. They denied that sin even existed. How could sin exist if everything that you do in the body really doesn't matter, if it doesn't have any spiritual consequence, if it doesn't have any effect on your standing before God, then it's really not an issue. And so it was in the middle of that kind of teaching teaching that you don't have to be a theologian to figure out it's not good news. It's bad news. It's in the midst of that sort of scenario that John, the Apostle John, stepped in and began to, with the writing of this book, with the writing of this letter, begin to confront these errors 
Now, in addition to all of this, when you, when you study the book, and this is, the book's a little challenging. It's a little challenging to outline. It's a little challenging to understand because John, the way he writes in this book, he kind of states and restates a lot of the same principles. And, you know, some people have kind of likened it sort of to ever-widening concentric circles. He talks about these concepts, and then he, a chapter later, then he talks about the same concepts and broadens them out a little bit. And a little later, he talks about the same concepts and, concepts and broadens them and deepens them a little bit more. So it's a, it's a little bit tough at times to follow, at least uh, if, you, if you just look at it on the surface. But as you read it and you study it, one of the other things that you uh, sort of understand about these false teachers is they're probably characterized by lack of love. We don't know exactly how that looked or how that fleshed itself out, but it was probably uh, manifested in the way they treated people in the church that didn't accept their teaching, that didn't buy into their new way of thinking that these, these guys had come up with, uh, that uh, didn't uh, follow them. And at some point, they led their followers, their disciples, their, uh, uh, the folks who did buy into their teaching to leave this church that John wrote to and uh, basically to... Uh, forsake the apostolic doctrine to forsake the church and to leave and follow them out to start Second Baptist Church or whatever it was. Uh, we, so, so this is not stuff we haven't seen before. This is stuff that has repeated itself throughout church history many, many times. And uh, this is what uh, John was, was writing and, and uh, uh, writing to confront and so it was in the middle of all this that he writes this letter. It was in that context, and he really has two basic purposes in writing the letter. And he tells us in the letter, and we'll kind of touch on it as we go. The first one was to expose the false teachers. John was not going to sit by. He wasn't going to lay back and say, well, you know, those brothers, they're a little misguided. But, you know, I'm going to pray for them. Maybe God will reveal the truth to them. Oh, no. No, no, no. That's not how you contend for the faith. John stepped in with love, but with great power and great authority and with some very powerful language and very contrasting ideas and thoughts, and he confronted this thing head on. But he did it in a real interesting way. He didn't go through and say, okay, heretical idea number one. Here's my refute of that. Heretical idea number two, here's my... No, he didn't do that. What he did was he went systematically and laid out the fundamentals of the faith, the uh, fundamentals of, of Christian doctrine at every point where they seemed to be straying like a master builder. He came along and he dropped a plumb bob. And it cut a straight line. And by looking at the straight line of the plumb bob of God's Word, you could very clearly tell where the false teachers were out of line. You could very clearly tell where they had strayed from sound doctrine. And so he, he wrote this letter, number one, to ex expose false teachers, but number two, to give believers assurance of salvation. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in this church, to have these probably prominent members, prominent teachers, folks you, you knew, you liked, you respected, maybe had been there with the church a long time, and they gradually began to ease off into this false doctrine and gradually begin to ease off into these areas that, that were not scriptural and yet you had this personal relationship with them, you had this personal connection, you've been in church with them, you knew them, you knew their family, they knew you and then at some point as the gap widened and farther and farther and farther they decided they were going to rally their troops and leave. That'll leave you shaking. If you're still one of the folks in the church 
And these are prominent folks. These are folks who you respect. These are folks who you think have a, a sound knowledge of Scripture. Maybe even folks who were teachers and at some point had taught sound doctrine. And now they're moving in another direction and they've gone so far as to load up, gather their troops and walk out the door. That would leave a person shaken. And I believe these folks were shaken. And I believe some of them may even been questioning whether or not they were really in the faith. Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I need to be going with them. Maybe they have it right. Because one of the aspects of Gnosticism was really the only way you could... The only, way, the only people who could know the real truth was if you had a real higher knowledge. You had to be one of the initiated. There was a higher knowledge. And it was only through this higher knowledge that you could really know the truth. Most peon Christians couldn't know that. It was just those who knew the higher things. And so maybe I messed up. Maybe I don't have it right. Maybe I've stayed when I should have went. Maybe I'm not the one who's in the faith. Maybe they are. You see how that can shake you? You see how that can get you off balance? So that's sort of where we are. And so he comes in and he emphasizes these fundamentals of the faith. He doesn't talk directly about the false teachers. He just drops that plumb bob and he lets it fall where it falls. And he uses that to draw very stark contrasts between the truth of God's word, the fundamentals of the faith, and what these guys are teaching. And in the process, he does, uh, he, he, he is, in the process of doing this, he provides us with at least three fundamental character traits of a true Christian. I'm saying at least three because there are more, but at least three fundamental character traits of a true Christian. And he gives us sort of a litmus test that we can apply to our own lives uh, to determine whether our faith is genuine or not. And so that's where we are this morning. That's kind of where we're, uh, the context of the letter and kind of where we're going, okay? So uh, having said that, I'm going to ask you to, to, let's just start and jump in at 1 John chapter 1. So the first mark, according to the Apostle John, the first mark of a true believer is tied to a doctrinal test. And it goes like this. And I'm stating it in very simple terms and we'll flesh it out. What do you believe? What do you believe? And he starts talking about that in the first four verses. Read it with me if you would. And Graham, by the way, the lighting is good. I can see this. <laughs> I know, Graham, I was a little concerned. My 45-year-old eyes are getting a little rough. So sometimes I can't always see real good uh, with this little fine print. But praise God, I can, I can see it. So I don't have to make this up. I can actually read what it says. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We, procre we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete, or maybe you have a translation that says your joy complete. Not 100% certain on that. So, number one, John says, look, let me talk to you about the incarnation. I was there. I'm talking to you about things that I've touched, things that I've seen, things that I've smelled. I was with him when we were traveling. I was with him when he was preaching. I was with him when he was teaching. I was with him when he healed the blind and when he raised the dead I was with him I was there and I saw he was real he had flesh okay I'm not talking about something that I heard somebody else say 
This is a first-hand eyewitness account of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christ came in human flesh. So a true believer, first and foremost, has a proper view of who Christ is. If you are a true believer, you're going to have a proper view of who Christ is, that He is the incarnate Word of God. And he goes on to say in verse 2, he alludes to the fact, he says, we have seen it, this, this Word of life he talks about, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Not only does he talk about the incarnation, but he says, hey, this word I'm talking about, this, this, this person, this incarnate word, he was with the Father from the very beginning. He's eternal, okay? So before he was human, before he took on the limitations of humanity, before he took on flesh, he was eternal. That's a mark of a proper view of Christ. And he goes on to talk about in verse 3 that it's, it's fellowship with him that is the source of fellowship with God. And that word fellowship doesn't mean, hey, you know, let's all show up at the church and eat pizza and hang out. That's not the kind of fellowship that he's talking about here. The word has the idea of being a partaker or a participant in eternal life. So he's saying the way that you participate in eternal life is through Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life of God. And so he goes down through here in very clear fashion and highlights the incarnation, the eternality of God, uh, the fact that, that Christ is the source of fellowship with God. And then, think about the circles that keep getting a little bigger. Let's flip over to chapter 2. And we'll be bouncing around a little bit, so I apologize up front. He fleshes this out again in chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, I'll let you get there. Where he says, who, and, and I'm going to just warn you, John, you know, there's a reason why Jesus called John and James the sons of thunder, okay? They were pretty black and white kind of guys. They were pretty speak your mind kind of guys. They did, you know, they just called what it was. They called a spade a spade. And so he says in verse 22, who is, who is the liar? He's going to tell you who the liar is. It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. John goes on to say, hey, he is the Christ. And this idea that somehow you can believe in God and accept God but not believe in Christ and accept Christ, that can't happen. Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ is a liar. And anyone who denies Christ is denying the Father because guess what? They're one. They're one. Okay? So he fleshes this idea out, this, this, this idea of who Christ is. And then on in chapter 4, verse 15, just follow with me. Chapter 4, verse 15, he says, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has. If anyone, listen to this, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him. He is the Son of God. He reinforces the idea that Christ is the way to God. He is the only way to God. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven among which we must be saved. There is no other way. So John nails this idea that you have to have a proper view of Christ if you are a true believer. You will have. And, and I just want to flesh this idea out. The whole, the whole sense here is that our faith has content. There's content to it. 
And true faith must be based on the truth of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in Scripture. Okay? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's right. Our faith has content. And the content is God's Word. And we can only have a proper view of who Christ is when we understand what God's Word says about who Christ is. It can't come from any other place. And, it's, and this whole issue of who Christ is, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to flip over there. I'm trying to follow my pastor's recommendations here. He says after you establish the biblical content, context, then you have to establish uh, the historical context, then you've got to follow the biblical context. So we're going to look at a little farther out here. I'm trying to do what he's told me to do. Matthew 16, verse 13. I love this dialogue. Listen to what Jesus says. It says, when Jesus came, I still have pages turning. I'm going to stop. I'm sorry. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Pretty important question. Listen to what they said. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But I love this. Then he turned and he looked at them. Didn't say that. I threw that in. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? See, that's the crux of the matter. That is the crux of the matter. If you want to know whether doctrine about Christ is solid, whether it's biblical, you need to ask the question when you hear the teaching, who do they say Jesus is? That is the crux of the matter. And, and this is where Peter, for all his stumbling and bumbling and, and you know doing all the silly stuff that Peter did, this is where Peter stepped up, stood over the plate, perfect stance, hit the ball and knocked it out of the park. Because Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? He nailed it. He absolutely nailed it. So this issue of who Christ is and having a proper view of Christ is a big deal. It is a big deal. We can't say that we have faith in Christ, that our faith is real unless we really understand who Christ is from a biblical perspective. And it's scary to me that it seems as though when you talk to people so many times and they talk about faith, it, it, I get a little iffy, I get a little concerned when I start hearing them describe a Jesus that's not revealed in Scripture. Well, my Jesus this, or my Jesus would never do that, or my Jesus... Well, see, the thing is, we don't get to create who Jesus is. We don't, we don't get to do that. God's already done that, okay? So, genuine faith is going to be built on a proper view of Christ. And I just want to say, just as a side note, because I don't want you to misunderstand me, our faith does have content, and it has to be biblical content. It has to be based on the work and the life of Jesus Christ. But faith is more than just believing in a set of facts, okay? So I just want to give you that side note, and as we go through here, you'll see by the other two points that John believed that with all his heart. Faith is more than just saying, I believe, I believe. That's mental assent. It's possible to believe in a set of facts, and it just be that. A belief in a set of facts. In the, in the Gospel of John, several times, John alludes to the fact that there was belief and then there was belief. Okay? And what we're looking at is not just belief. What we want to say is belief. Okay? And so it's not just in a set of facts. James says in James 2.19, the the, even the demons believe in what? Tremble. 
I mean, they're orthodox in their doctrine. It's not as though they don't know who Jesus Christ is. It's not as though they don't know what the, the deal is. They don't know, that, the, you know that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So it is a wholehearted trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason uh, it's, it's kind of scary. One of the scariest passages to me is in Matthew chapter 7. And I want to flip over there and read it to you because, again, Jesus nails this idea that we're talking about. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. To me, these are some of the most sobering words in all of Scripture. Matthew 7, 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, it's not just about what you know. It's not even about just what you do. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about having a deep trust, a sincere belief in who he is and what he's done and hanging your eternal consequences on that fact. Okay? Starts, though, with a proper view of Christ. But here's, there's others. There's, there's, there's another component of this, okay? And so follow with me on into the, the first chapter there and go to verse 8. Not only do, we, do, do true believers have a proper view of Christ, they're also going to have a, a, a true believer will have a proper view of sin and self. Look at verse 8. And we'll just read through several verses. John chapter, 1 John 1, 8. John says there, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, a little bit different take there, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, not only do we have to have a proper view of Jesus Christ, we have to have a proper view of sin and a proper view of ourself. And he goes through and sort of, again, not stating in the negative exactly what the false beliefs are, but restating in the positive what the true beliefs should be. And he says, first of all, if you claim that you don't have sin... You're deceiving yourself, and the truth isn't in you, okay? Because these folks were saying, we don't have, what's sin? We don't have any sin. How can you have sin? Everything in the body is immaterial. It doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. It's all about the spirit. It's all about the spiritual side. And John says, hogwash. Hogwash. That's a technical theological term. I don't know if you've heard that or not. Hogwash, Okay. So a true believer affirms the reality, first of all, of a sin nature. Do you know that we're, we're sinners by nature? We inherited that, okay? We inherited it from our parents who inherited it from their parents and who inherited it from their parents, and it goes all the way back to who? Adam, exactly. That's exactly right. And so he's saying here, we are sinners by nature. It's, it's what we are, okay? And then in verse 10... He twists the wording just a little bit in the original, and he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we don't sin. It's one thing to claim that there is no sin. It's something else 
to say, I haven't sinned at all. We make him out to be a liar, and his word is no place in us. So he's there acknowledging personal sin, that not only are we sinners by nature, we're sinners by practice. If you don't, if you don't think you're a, nat- a sinner by nature, just watch what you do. Listen to the words that come out of your mouth. Think about the thoughts that you have. I mean, I don't know if you're like me. Y'all probably aren't as weird as I am. But I can be praying and, and in my quiet place and having my quiet time, and I can have every intention of seeking after God and talking to God, and some of the craziest stuff will come into my head. I'm sure y'all don't do that. But I do. So he acknowledges that, that, that we have a sin nature, uh, he acknowledges that there's personal sin. And he says, look, the right view of it is, in verse 9, that we confess our sins. And that means to, to agree with God, to say the same thing is what it means. So what a Christian does is they acknowledge, someone with real faith, they acknowledge that, hey, you know what, I know I'm a sinner by nature. I understand that about myself. I'm not going to try to explain it away or sidestep it or excuse it. And, and I, not, am I, not only am I a sinner by nature, I'm a sinner by practice. I do it all the time. I don't want to do it, but I do. And so what are you left with? What you're left with is verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, if we, if we come to God and we call it what it is, we agree with God, we say the same thing about our sin that God has said, and that is that it's wrong, that it's an affront to Him, that it's an affront to His holiness, okay? that we shouldn't have done it, that we shouldn't have said it, we shouldn't have thought it, whatever the sin was. If we do that, then there's a wonderful promise to all true believers, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's a big part of the prayer life of a true believer because you're going to constantly, (laughs) if you're honest with yourself, constantly be coming to God saying, well, God, it's me again. Yeah, I know, I was just here five minutes ago, but it's me again, and I messed up again. But that's okay. Because that is the way that God intended it. He intended for us to be real, to be true, and to call it what it is and to come back to Him. And, and we have an advocate, he goes on to say in chapter 2. We have an advocate with the Father. We have someone who speaks to the Father on our behalf. That's all of that to say that a true believer is going to have a proper view of sin. Okay? Not going to try to explain it away. Not going to try to sidestep it. Not going to say, well, you know, you know I'm this way because of my mama. You know, if you knew my mama, it'd be a... I'm sorry, moms, I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't intentionally do that on Mother's Day. If you knew my daddy, you'd know why I'm so messed up. You know? Uh, So, uh, (laughs) it's all about a proper view of sin and understanding yourself. And here's the thing. You say, well, Clay, what in the world does that have to do with being a believer? Well, here's the thing. You cannot be saved until you understand that you're lost. You cannot be forgiven of sin until you come to the point where you admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. can't happen. You have to have a proper view of sin. You have to understand who you are. And until you do, you can't be saved. Your faith can't be real. It's as silly as if we, went all, went to, if we were all at it like Jacksonville and Graham was out swimming and he had decided he was just going to swim you know, out and come back and, and he got about halfway out on the route and I jumped into a boat and ran out and ran up beside him and, and threw a life raft out to him and said, Hey, hurry up, get in. I'm going to save you. He would look at me like I'd lost my mind. Why? 
He didn't need saving. He didn't have a problem. And the thing is, even though we have a problem, and even though we are separated from God because of our sin, until we get that, until we come to that conviction, until we understand what that means, we can't be saved. So it comes down to this doctrinal test that we're talking about within the book of 1 John, two major points. First, a proper view of Christ, who He really is according to Scripture, and secondly, a proper view of sin. Now, he moves from this doctrinal test, whew, i got to go fast, sorry, uh, to a moral test. And the moral test asks the question, how do you live? It's not just about what you believe. How does that translate into how you live? Okay? And there's sort of a positive and a negative aspect of this, and so I just want to look at it real quickly. Mom, I, Mom, I promise I'm not going to let you pot roast burn, or I'm not going to let the restaurant fill up so full that you can't get in so dad can buy you lunch so look at chapter 2 with me and starting in verse 3 let's look at this moral test and let's look at the positive side of it first okay the moral test part 1 there's two parts to it and within this part there's a sort of a positive statement and a negative statement so here we are part 1 a true believer obeys God's commands you got that? A true believer obeys God's commands. How do we know that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We know, and by the way, that's some of John's favorite words. We know. No, no, no. This is how you can know that you know Him. This is how you can know that you uh, walk with Him. All of these things. No, no, no. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar. There's that son of thunder coming out, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. So here's the deal. The first part of this is the true believer obeys God's commands. Now, we're not talking about perfection. He's already said, hey, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. So we're not talking about perfection here. What he's talking about is the pattern of our lives, the habitual pattern, the overall direction of our lives. And what he's saying is one of the ways that you know whether your faith is real or not is that you habitually obey God. Uh, you habitually follow God. You habitually do what he says to do. Again, it's not perfection. None of us are perfect, okay? But it is the direction of our lives. It is the pattern of our lives and uh, to follow God. And then he fleshes that out from the other side in chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. If you want to turn there with me. Positively, true believer obeys God's commands. Negatively, a true believer cannot live in habitual sin. Okay? A true believer cannot live in habitual sin. So, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That is, habitually. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the devil's works. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. 
This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. There's only two families on planet earth, by the way. Children of God, children of the devil. We're all in one family or the other. And this is, this is, this is his point this is in this sort of summary verse in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So the idea here is that positively, a person who knows the Lord, who is, has real faith, genuine faith, is going to habitually obey God. Okay? God's word is going to be the standard, and they're going to habitually follow that. They're going to habitually obey that. They're going to seek to, to honor God through that obedience. And negatively, they can't live in habitual, unbroken sin. Just can't do it. Now, can Christians sin? Of course they can. He's made that clear and do regularly and constantly need to confess sin, constantly need an advocate with the Father that goes. And every time Satan comes to accuse, says, Father, he belongs to me. You know, I've paid for that. We need that. But if you can, if I can, if anyone can live in a habitual, unbroken pattern of sin, and it doesn't bother us, something's wrong. Something's wrong with that. Okay? That ought to scare us. That ought to make us really uncomfortable. So, then you've got the second part of the moral test. And that has to do with, so we've talked about what we believe, we've talked about how we live, and then we've talked about the third part, which is who or what we love. And that's the second part of the moral test. And, uh, and he comes back to that idea. We'll just flip back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7, where he begins the thought. Dear friends, I'm writing, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. I know why people would read that and say, what? I'm not writing you a new commandment, it's an old one, but it's, no, it's really a new one. Uh, it's, it's both, okay? It's really both. Uh, but whoever hates his, I'm sorry, let me back up. Whoever loves his brother... Let me back up even more. I'm in, I'm in the wrong verse. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, and you because the darkness passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So one of the ways that we can understand this moral test is by asking, and there's kind of a positive and a negative aspect of it as well, the first question is, do we love our brothers? Do we love other Christians? Now listen, I understand. Some of us jive better than others, okay? I mean, can we just be honest? I mean, I love all of you, but there's some of you I like better than others. I mean, there's some of you I want to hang out with. And there's others that we probably never will hang out together. We probably never, you'll probably never invite me to your house for dinner, and I'll probably never invite you. Doesn't mean I don't love you. So we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is love. And, and we're talking about a biblical view of love. And a biblical view of love is tied to action. It's how we act. It's how we treat each other. It's what we do for each other. It's whether or not we care about the needs that we have and whether we try to meet the needs when we see the needs need to be met. Okay? 
So a true believer loves other Christians and, and, want, and, and has a connection with other Christians. And uh, it's, it's interesting how sometimes you can meet people many times who are, other, who are Christians. You don't know them. You've never met them before. But you meet them for the first time and there's just sort of an instant connection. Why? Because you both have the Spirit of God living inside of you. You both have the, the life of God and the nature of God inside you. You both have the same wanter, you know. When God saves us, He gives us a new wanter. And you've got that same wanter, that same new wanter that they've got. And so there's a connection there. So positively, a true believer loves other Christians. And that's exactly what he says here. That, hey, you know, if you say that you walk in the light, if you say you're a Christian, then one of the ways you know that that's true is that you love the brethren. You love other Christians. Why is that true? Because God is what? Love. God is love. And he tells us that. I'm, I'm summarizing because I'm out of truth. He tells us that in chapter 4, that God is love. And, and he tells us in, in uh, chapter 4 that the, the love for the brethren is really uh, just proof of a greater love, a more important love, and that is love for God. So a believer, a genuine believer, real faith, is going to love God first and foremost and love the brethren. But he also gives a, a negative aspect of that in chapter 2, verse 15, very quickly, the negative side, because there's something we shouldn't love. And he tells us in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boastings of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And when he talks about the world there, what he's talking about is the, the, the evil world system, the godless world system that we live in, all the the ungodly ideas and philosophies and ideologies and all of the ungodly thought processes, the world system that Scripture says over and over again that Satan's in control of. You can't love that. You can't chase after that. A real Christian doesn't do that. A real Christian doesn't get hung up on all of that. Rather, a, a, a true Christian, a person who has true faith, is going to have as their first love and their only ultimate love, God. And out of that will flow love for other Christians. So I just want to, in kind of tying it all together, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to get you to think about a couple of things. What's your faith based on? What is your faith based on? John says that if your faith is real, it's going to be based on a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is as revealed in Scripture. Not what your brother-in-law told you or your uncle or your neighbor down the street, a proper view of who Christ is based on the Scripture and a proper view of who you are and the sin that is a part of you. That's what a real Christian has to understand. So I would just ask you, what's your faith based on? Number two, what is your life built on? What are you building your life on? Are you, do you do what you do because that's what mom and daddy did, because that's what you learned, because that sounds good, it's because it's what you learned watching Oprah or Dr. Phil? Why do you, how do you live your life? What are you building it on? Are you building it on the firm foundation of God's Word that doesn't shift, that doesn't move, that doesn't change? Or are you building it on something else? Number three, what do you love? John says... If you are a Christian, if your faith is real, you're going to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And as Jesus said, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So I would just pray. My prayer for you this morning would be that if you are a genuine believer, and I, you know, some people might say, well, of course I'm a genuine believer. I'm in church, aren't I? Well, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. If you, my prayer for you is this. If you are a genuine believer, I hope that you've been encouraged. I hope that you've found some assurance. And I hope that you'll have a chance to maybe think about some of these things. I have. I've been meditating on them now for a couple of weeks. And uh, uh, I hope that it will grow and deepen your assurance before God and give you a peace before God because you can know. It is a certainty. And he says in chapter 5, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not something you have to wonder about. But if in listening to these things and in being confronted with these truths, uh, it's made you uneasy, it's made you uncertain, it's made you unsure, I hope you'll dig deeper. I hope you'll uh, spend some time before God searching your own heart in light of God's Word. It's not something that you have to wonder about. It's something you can nail down. And I know there are lots of godly men in the church that would be happy to talk with you, the godly women, about that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you 